Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture text that we will be examining today is Psalm 132, verses 1 through 18. This can be found on page 299 of the blue ESV Bibles. Those are located in the back pocket cover of the seat in front of you. As always, if you do not own a Bible, those Bibles are available for you to take home. Once again, we'll be reading Psalm 132, verses 1 through 18. A Song of Ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. Here I will dwell, for I have des- or for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. There I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints I will, sh- will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. The Word of God is the great gift that you have given us. Without the Word of God, we wouldn't know about Christ. We wouldn't know about His redemption. We wouldn't know um, how you have called us to uh, reflect your holiness through the gospel. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. And God, we pray that as we do week in and week out, we pray that you would allow your word to be a tool of examination of us, Lord, that we would be um, under the the, uh, the microscope and scalpel of the word, Lord, that you would search us and know us and see if there any is there if there's any wicked way in us, and Lord, uh, cause us to cling and be held to the rock that is higher than ourselves. And we thank you. God, that your word is able to do this. And so, God, we pray for our ears and our hearts, our spirits, Lord, that we would receive your word and that we would receive it as it is, that it is the word of God, the the all-powerful, inerrant uh, word of God. And so we pray that you would just uh, let your infallible word just just uh, begin to alter us, transform us into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray for myself as the messenger of your word. And God, I pray that... I would um, preach accurately, that I would preach clearly, and that, Lord, you would be glorified by the words of my mouth and the motivations of my heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, 
Before I get started, if you'll just allow me this, I want to say how good it is to have Jason in the service today. Um, I have missed him along with his mama and brothers and sisters-in-law. We've all missed him, and, and so really good to have him. Nice to see him on the on the keyboard today. Um, we are still, uh, obviously, in the Songs of Ascent, but we are drawing to a close. After this one, we got two more, and we're done with this series. I've really enjoyed this series. Um, but today, in Psalm 132, we've come to the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. If as you'll recall, most of them have been anywhere from three to six verses. I think we had one that was eight verses. Um, this one uh, comes in at a whopping 18 verses by comparison. Um, and there's a lot of views about this psalm. It, it, uh, a lot of people have different views as to who wrote it, as to when it was written. Uh, some people believe that it was written by David. As some of the song, you know, songs of ascent, they'll say a song of ascent of David or of Solomon. This does not give us an attribution. But um, uh, some believe David wrote it since his name is prominently featured in the psalm four times. However, that's not very likely. More likely, it was written by someone who wanted to thankfully commemorate to God the covenant that he had made with David, an everlasting covenant. And, and this would have happened even after the death of the king. Um, perhaps it was Solomon. Um, there's reason to believe that because there's a quotation uh, that Solomon uh, takes directly from the psalm, or the psalm takes directly from Solomon, rather, and um, uh, since he was David's son and successor. But it could have been anyone um, who, who who was around that time. Um, David's uh, uh, David's son Solomon, of course, built the temple, and so uh, the 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 temple becomes like the centerpiece of Psalm 132, which is not odd because we talked about the songs of ascent. They are all sung by people who are going to the temple. And so as they're reaching the climax of this group of of, uh, songs, then obviously the temple is foremost in their mind. So then David and the temple become the subject of this psalm, and the psalm itself is divided into three parts. You can look at those 18 verses and kind of divide them up into about three parts. In verses 1 through 7, we read of David's determination to build a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant in honor of the Lord. Verses 8 through 10, we see a national prayer that is offered at the dedication of that temple when it's completed. And then lastly, in verses 10 through 18, we see God's response to this prayer that is being made before him by his people. So, setting this up, in order to understand this passage that Raven just read to us, we need to understand two important things in order to receive the beautiful message of this song. And, and um, just by way of, of uh, uh, encouragement to you, sometimes these couple of things, will, well, usually rather, not sometimes, but usually these couple of things I'm going to suggest to you for this psalm will help you at any Old Testament passage. The things that we need to keep in mind are Old Testament history and, and what we're going to call Christological typography. I'll explain that in just a minute. But uh, the reason I say that is because a lot of times when we're reading through the Old Testament, we'll read names of people or place names or things, and we have no context for them. But if we'll dig a little bit deeper, the, the, the text 
really comes alive to us because we understand better what the situation was and what, what was happening and, and what the, why these place names are significant, why these people's names are significant. And so let's talk about that. We need to know a little bit more about Old Testament history because it's really important as we read the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter, to realize that the Bible was not written in a vacuum. The Bible is not not a collection of fortune cookie statements that you can just kind of pull out and apply to whatever you're, you're going through to kind of make you feel better and make you get through another day. The Bible was a message that was written to real, albeit ancient people, and they were in very real situations, not as different as what you face today. Christological typography, on the other hand, that, that's a big couple of words that means that it should be obvious to anyone who invests the time to read the scripture that God, from the very beginning of the story, was telling the story uh, not just of you know, Bible heroes and the shifting of kingdoms, but he was actually telling the story of Christ, which we call the gospel, from the very beginning. And he was telling that story through the history of his people. Now, he's telling the story of Christ long before Christ was ever born in a manger in Bethlehem. And, and he does this by using what we call types and shadows. He's painting pictures for us so that when Jesus will arrive, those who he has called to himself will say, okay, I see it. This is the fulfillment of something that was promised. Uh, some of the examples of this. Uh, Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac, which makes no sense to Abraham's mind. He takes his son up obediently to sacrifice him, and right before the, he drops the knife, what happens? There's a ram uh, caught in a thicket that becomes the substitute sacrifice. Well, what was Jesus? He was our substitute sacrifice. We're seeing a picture of the gospel in that story. You go back even further than that, and what happens? God tells Noah to build a giant boat because in, in not very long, he's going to flood the entire uh, world with rain as a symbol of his wrath, as his judgment. And what happens? The ones that were called by God were protected in safety in that ark. Well, guess what? Jesus is our ark of safety. We are protected from the wrath of God by Jesus. So all through the Old Testament, you see examples of this. It's been said very famously by a famous preacher, you are not David. The story of David is not about you. It's about David who is who is standing as a type and a shadow of Jesus. So through the narrow lens of Old Testament history, we see God giving us many witnesses of what he will eventually do through Christ. In the lives of men like David and the symbolism of the temple and the priesthood, we see a plan that would only be perfectly fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Now, if you miss this point about Christological typography, then when you when without those things you'll only look for moral examples through the bible story so instead of realizing you're not david all you'll hear in messages like i preach is be like david be like joseph be like whoever and that's not the point the point is to see jesus You'll miss the point of God's message throughout history. He has been saying the same thing since the very beginning. The New Testament is not a departure from the message of the Old Testament. It's a fulfillment of the message of the Old Testament. 
And that's why from the very beginning, what happens? Adam and Eve sin. They fall. The, and God shows up in the garden and he, he, he makes this incredible promise in the third chapter of the Bible. Halfway through the chapter, he makes this incredible promise. He looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. He's saying that this serpent, the devil is going to cause an injury to Christ, but Christ will ultimately defeat him, crushing his head. And this was the first promise of the coming gospel. And we could go through every book of the Old Testament and see this over and over and over and over, how uh, God is preaching the gospel through the Old Testament. And that's important when you come to a message like today. So both history and its Christological typography, or typology rather, come into play when we get into Psalm 132. All right, everybody still with me? Y'all caught up to speed? You up to speed about how we're going to look at this verse? Okay, awesome. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has been, we're, we're kind of fast forwarding the story from where we were last week. David has been installed now as Israel's king. Now, he had been anointed as king many years before by Samuel, but on the way to the throne, you'll, re, you'll recall, he was chased by a very jealous King Saul, who was, felt very threatened by this young upstart and, and um, wanted to, to, uh, to take him out because he thought that he would lose the kingdom, which he would if David arose to the throne. So he was jealous of him. And, and on top of that, David endured many kind of attacks and trials and betrayals and all kinds of things. And so this psalm starts out with that background in mind. It says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. So now where we're at in the story now Saul is dead. David sits as a popular king in his newly captured capital city of Jerusalem. In the comfort of his palace, sitting there one night, he realizes something is terribly wrong with this picture. What is wrong? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, we read David saying these words. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David's conscience is stirred by the lack of regard he is showing through his leadership for God. The Ark of the Covenant, which, as you'll recall, was built by Moses and the children of Israel and their journeys through the wilderness to house the, the pieces of the, of the tablets that would contain the Ten Commandments. It also had a jar of manna and Aaron's staff, which miraculously budded with, with new life. And it's carrying these things, and it's a symbol of God's covenant with his people. That's why it's called the Ark or the, the container of the covenant. And, and it was above this ark that God, the glory of God dwelt manifestly. And now, several hundred years after Moses, it's being housed in the tent that Moses and the people had constructed hundreds of years prior in the wilderness. And yet the king of Israel is dwelling in a palace. And he determined in this moment to right this wrong and he made an extreme commitment and he made a vow and that vow is recorded for us here in Psalm 132, verse 2. He says, How David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place 
for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, let me just be real clear here. David is speaking in hyperbole here. He is not saying that he's not going to sleep. He's not going to, he's, he's speaking with a figure of speech to, to give strength to his words to say that this is my utter determination to make sure that I right the wrong, that, that God's ark has a place just like I've got a place. He, he's, he's saying that building a house for the Lord would become his highest priority and until he saw that project was completed. But shortly after making this vow, this is what's so interesting, that the Bible records this vow here, because shortly after making this vow, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you would see this. The Lord appears to him and told him that the honor of building the temple would not be given to him. Even with his determination, even with his strong vow, he would not be the builder of the temple. Instead, it would be given to one of his sons. But God intended, this is the glory of that, God intended to do something incredible for David instead. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And then you skip down to verse 11, and God tells David this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will build you a house, or will make you a house. Now, God is not saying that he's going to build a big castle and dig out a moat for David to have to boast in. What he's saying is that he is going to give him a lasting dynasty. God didn't let David build the temple himself as he had desired and even vowed to do, but God honored his heart, which was more concerned for God's house than his own house. Does God find in us, in you and I, let's get real, does he find the same concern? Does he find a people among us who are willing to withhold sleep or other comforts because of our concern that the house of God, the people of God, the nation of God, lies in ruins. When we find in ourselves worldliness, or when we find that worldliness is as common inside the walls of this place as it is outside the walls, Do we lie awake like David, wrestling with God in prayer that we might be the ones who build his house? Do we daily and carefully examine ourselves to ensure that it's not our own grumbling or gossiping or apathy that are the source that is ruining his house? May God this morning stir us with so much zeal for our church, for this church, for his church, that our children and our grandchildren will be left with shining examples and raw materials of faith and pure worship, and that they may build a magnificent temple made with the living stones of their lives, as as Peter calls them. Verse 6 says this, Behold, we heard of it, it being the ark, we heard of it in Ephrathah, We found it in the fields of J.R. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. See, the ark 
had not always been secure in the tent where it was kept. Sometimes it was taken out into battle as, as a kind of a symbolic way of taking the presence of the Lord. Well, not in their case, not really symbolic, but taking the presence of the Lord into battle. And God, because of the failure of the Israelites and specifically their priesthood, had allowed it many years before to be captured in battle by the Philistines, who were in turn cursed by God. By the way, just heads up, these are some of the funniest stories in the Old Testament. God allowed the, uh, the, the, uh, the ark to be captured in battle, and the Philistines took it, and they were in turn cursed by God because they made, an ark into ju- they made the ark into just another idol, and they stuck it right in the temple of their god, Dagon. But if you've read the story, and the reason why I say it's funny is because the ark is sitting in the, in the temple of Dagon. They wake up the next morning, and Dagon is flat on his face. The idol of Dagon is flat on his face before the ark. And so they say, oh, well, wind must have knocked over Dagon. They, they uh, put him back over. And the next day they come back in. Dagon is once again on his face, only this time his head and his hands have been cut off. Who is the God of power in this situation? But it, it got worse than that, if I can be so brutally honest with you. Not only did he knock their idol down on their face before the ark, but he plagued the Philistines with mice and what most Bibles translate as tumors, which if you do a little digging you'll find we're actually hemorrhoids. So God really was a pain to the Philistines. And so the Philistines, in their wisdom, took the, the, the ark and they put it on a cart, a cart and they said, this is not a good idea to hang on to this thing. This is not working out well for us. And they just put it on a, on a new cart with some oxen to take it wherever they were going to take it. And um, they said, if it goes this way, then we'll know that, that this was just all coincidence, no big deal. If it goes this way, that, that uh, we'll know that God's hand was in this. Well, which direction do you think that the ark went? It was clearly the hand of God. So it led it to a, a, an Israelite village. Uh, God led the oxen to an Israelite village called Beth Shemesh. And, uh, the, but the men of Beth Shemesh actually broke the law of God, clearly revealed law of God, and looked into the ark, and, and 70 of them died because they had looked into the ark, which was forbidden to do. And so fearing God's holiness, which was a pretty smart thing, just a little too late in their fearing of God's holiness, the men of Beth Shemesh did not want the ark anymore, just like the Philistines. And so they sent it to a neighboring village called Kiriath-Jerim, which is what th- this verse referred to as the fields of Jar. It's a forested city in, or village in Israel. And, and look at this from 1 Samuel chapter 7. It says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the ark. Now, I gave you all that history because this is what the, refer- the reference is. David is saying in his vow that he recalls how in his boyhood home of Bethlehem, which is Ephrathah, that they would hear of the ark sitting in the woods of Kiriath-Jerim, and they would long for it. They longed for the glory days of Israel to be dis- uh, restored, where the ark was at the centerpiece of worship for God. And so it just sat there and sat there and they would long for it and they wanted, they wanted it back so they would have, have the, the, the uh, clear vision of God's power and his beauty. And it was in David's early years as king that he determined to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem where it belonged. And it was a great day of great celebration uh, when the people made their way to where the Ark was. 
and they worshipped at his at his footstool, as the psalm said. Now, this foot, this idea of this footstool, it means it, it's referring to the ark, the the vision of the people of of. Uh, uh, of uh, Israel were, was that God in all of his glory dwelt above the ark and stood upon it in, in his dwelling place, that the ark was his dwelling place and it was his footstool because he was too holy to touch the earth. And so they, wore, they wanted to have it back and worship his footstool, so they brought it back to Jerusalem. And this was the for, first step towards moving towards a more permanent dwelling place, a temple for the ark instead of this tent. So David searched out the ark and brought it back to the place of prominence where it belonged. And it occurs to me that many of us go weeks allowing the Lord to languish in the forest of our indifference. See, our our problem a lot of times in the American church isn't outright sin and, and, you know, scandalous things. It's more just indifference. And it occurs to me that we're like those Israelites who just let the ark sit for 20 years in the fields of Kiriath-Jerim. And, and, but, but you know, why do we allow the Lord to languish in the forest of our indifference? And it's because we're distracted by much lesser things. But we're called to seek the Lord and go find him. We're called to live under his smiling face. And how do we do that? It's not as hard as you think. Sometimes when I was growing up and I'd hear the term seek the Lord, I thought it meant a lot of, you know, hyper-spiritualized calisthenics. But we seek the Lord in his word. Guarantee you start digging for the Lord in the word, you're going to find him. You seek him in prayer. You actually seek him in a great opportunity you had earlier in the service. You seek the Lord in worship. Believe it or not, you seek the Lord in fellowship with and service to the other saints. We seek him in confession, and we seek him in repentance, and we seek him in obedience. And when we seek him, the Bible says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek, with, seek me with all of your heart. And it's those last few words that is our problem, the seeking the Lord with all of our hearts, because we have so many other things that we have allowed. We're not... We're not helpless victims here. We've allowed those things to distract us and call our attention and pull us away from things that are much better. So ask yourself this morning, what is hindering your diligent search for Jesus and his grace, his blessing, or the transformed life and heart that only he can give? Where have you neglected to seek him? His word, his prayer, fellowship with the saints, worship, confession, repentance? After David's death, <coughs> excuse me, Solomon fulfilled the desire of his heart, David's heart rather, by completing a magnificent temple for God to dwell in, for the ark to be placed in. And yet, as Solomon realized the magnitude of God's power and his holiness, he exclaimed in 1 Kings 8:27, "But will God indeed dwell on the earth?" Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So the temple wouldn't literally box God into this little area, but what it would, like the tabernacle in the wilderness and like the ark itself, it would represent God's dwelling place among his people. It would give the the people, as it were, a touchstone to know, hey, God is real, he's here, he's on our side. 
And the next three verses of this psalm take the words of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, 14, uh, 41 through 42, and makes them a prayer for continued blessing on David's kingdom and God's people. It says, Arise, O God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Solomon prays that God would take his rest in the temple. Now, this does not mean that God's going to go into the temple and chill. It doesn't mean that he's going to cease from activity. But what it means is they're asking God to rest. When they, What they're saying is uh, Solomon is imploring God to allow his power and his presence to settle there, that it would be a place that would be filled with his holiness and that people could learn more of him in that place. And the effect of his power and his presence being manifest would be that those who serve in the temple would do so clothed in the beauty of holiness. He says, your priest will be clothed with righteousness. He prays that the manifest holiness of God, along with the holy service of his appointed priesthood, will result in his people being identified by their rapturous shouts of joy as a testimony to the outside world. The idea was that when people saw the righteous priests of the Lord shouting for joy, they would be attracted to the God of Israel. Solomon also prays that God would also remember forever the promises that he made to David to build a dynasty and that his kingdom would remain. Now, the remainder of Psalm 132 shows us how God answered this prayer and for our benefit, how he is still answering this prayer. Now, when we look into this, we're going to see how God is answering that prayer in ways that Solomon could never have fully imagined, and he's doing it through Christ and through his church. You're part of this. Psalm 132, verse 11 begins, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons from your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant... And my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So David made a heartfelt vow to build a, a temple for him, for God. And, but, but he wasn't, because of God's sovereignty, able to perform it. But watch this. His, his son Solomon built it instead. But here's what God does in response to David's vow. Did you notice the word there? In response to David's vow, God makes David a vow. He makes a vow of his own that the kingdom will never pass from his line. And, and his, his oath is a sure oath, he says, and from one from which he will not turn back. But there is a condition. There is a condition in here. I hope you picked up on it. He says, if your sons always keep God's commandments and his testimonies, that's the, that's the way that they're going to retain the throne. Well because I don't have the time to go through all of the history of the kingdom of Israel and Judah. The, here's a spoiler alert. They did not keep his covenants and his testimonies. Some of them were great kings. But in fact, many of David's descendants were so wicked that God eventually sent the whole nation into exile, and the house of David's rule was, and here's the key word, temporarily interrupted. But here's the thing. 
Here's the beauty of this everlasting covenant that God made with David. The interruption of the kingly line is not the significant thing to focus on. Here's the significant thing to focus on. God loved David. God called David a man after his own heart. And many generations after his sons failed miserably. Guess what God did? He had another descendant of David in line. And that descendant's birth was predicted by an angel. We're getting ready really close to celebrate this. And this is how it went down in Luke one thirty one. The angel is speaking to his mother Mary, and he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now, quite frankly, when we buy Christmas cards and and sing songs, that's usually about where we focus. That's the boundary of where we focus. But I want you to take really close notice of the next two verses, verses 32 and 33. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so God is saying, the line's been interrupted, they didn't keep their end of the deal, but guess what? I'm a covenant-keeping God, so I'm returning to the line of David, and I'm going to establish a king on his throne forever. And it will, he will never, there will never again be an end to his kingdom. But more than that, God also promised to dwell in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem forever. He says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Now, what I want you to notice about this part of the passage is everything that Solomon prayed is being answered by God in this passage, every single element of it. But these tremendous promises the, the, uh, were also interrupted. These, these promises that we got about Zion, they were interrupted due to unfaithfulness and idolatry in the people. Ezekiel even saw a vision of God's glory leaving the temple when they were in exile in Babylon. So God no longer desired the temple as it was with a corrupt, idolatrous people who were, who were in one mouth praising God and in one, uh, in one side of their mouth they were offering sacrifices to idol. But remember, he didn't change his mind. God didn't just say, oh, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. His people abandoned him. And those whom God desired to bless instead received all the covenant curses listed in Deuteronomy 28 instead. The priests were not righteous. They weren't clothed with salvation. They were corrupt. And wails of agony and grief replaced shouts of joy in Jerusalem's streets. But for the sake of David and his covenant with God, God decided to do what his people could not do so that he could keep his covenant. He would have a people through Christ who would dwell, uh, who he could dwell among on the basis of grace, not on the basis of law. A substitution would be put forth to pay the debt of the sin that the people had incurred, even the idolatry, even the wickedness. 
And they would be blessed with forgiveness and healing and deliverance from all the power of their enemies. And the Bible says that the poorest would feast. Now, that was one of the promises that, that God made to Solomon. I will you're, you know, bless your poor with abundant food. And, and guess what? We're about to have the most abundant food here in just a moment. We're going to feast on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They wouldn't have priests anymore, but they would literally become a nation of priests. They wouldn't be clothed with righteousness that comes from careful observance of the law, but they would be clothed with full salvation that comes through grace. Righteousness by faith in God to whom they had been reconciled. Man, what a great, great, better deal this is. And this would be accomplished by a better priest who would once for all offer a better sacrifice to bring about a better covenant, offering a better hope, an eternal covenant that could not and would not be jeopardized by the people's weaknesses and sin. There, God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. In the Old Testament, over and over and over, the uh, horns are a symbol of political strength. And in Zion, in the, in the first phase of this promise, in Zion, a horn sprouted for David. The, the beginnings of power, the beginnings of something that would, would uh, one day become far more glorious. But it was, it was a sprouting, it was a beginning, and it was a vision of greater things to come. But what I want you to understand about the full meaning of this psalm is that now, in Christ and through His church, these horns that sprouted in David have become horns of iron that can destroy any enemy that challenges them. Sin and even death lie defeated before the might of David's holy son. He will reign forever and ever in an unending kingdom. And he also has a lamp that is called the gospel. It keeps us from shipwrecking ourselves on the rocks of sin. It keeps us from losing our way in a dark world. This lamp of the gospel. And it is calling Those who are unworthy and who know they are unworthy, but who know they need grace to come and put their trust in David's mighty son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally, David's son is the one that David himself called my Lord. And all of Christ's enemies, the Bible says, in this last verse, will wear shame as their vestments. The priests will be clothed, the nation of priests will be clothed in salvation, but all of his enemies will be clothed in shame. Listen to me, in the end of time, those who rejected Christ will have nothing to brag about and plenty to to blush about. They'll be clothed with shame. However, His friends will be clothed with salvation. And in those vestments of salvation, they will be able to gaze upon his shining crown forever. The Lord 
reigns. David's, uh, the covenant to David has been fulfilled. A son of David now sits on the throne and will sit on the throne forever. His kingdom will have no end. And aren't you glad? Would you stand with me? Tremendous, uh, the, the, the psalm promised provision for the poor, that they would you know, not be hungry anymore. Jesus said over and over in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels, he said that, that he, would, uh, he, he said he was the bread of life and whoever eats this bread would never be hungry. Bread that takes away all of your hunger, I would call that pretty abundant provision, wouldn't you? He said to the woman at the well, if anyone drinks this water that I'll give, they'll never thirst again. That's abundant provision, isn't it? And he, he identifies himself as the bread of life. And so I want you to remember that as you come to the table today, that, that we are, this is not just a, a ceremony that we do at the end of every service. This is the, the promise of abundant provision that God has promised to meet you at the table and he's, and he's given you these powerful symbols of his broken body and his his spilled blood that that cover you, that clothe you, as the psalm says, with salvation. And what was the next step after you're clothed with salvation? It says, and they shall be filled with shouts of joy. So I'm going to call our helpers up um, if you come. And, and uh, uh, I want you to remember that. And and as you come, if you, and you're welcome to come if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. If you're not a believer, if you're not sure, just stay there. And then we would love to talk to you if you'd like to talk after service and we can kind of help you because we want you at the table. We just don't want you to come before you're ready because if you, if you come before you're ready, it's not going to mean anything to you. It's just going to be uh, just a, a, a meaningless religious ceremony. And meaningless religious ceremonies don't do anything for anybody. So we want you to come as a believer. Um, but, uh, but we'd love to help you become a believer if, you, if, you are, uh, if you're in that state. So, but, but as you come and you consider these things and consider that this is this small piece of bread, this small cup of juice is a symbol of abundant provision, never ending supply, wherewith you will never be hungry and you'll never thirst again. And will you let that truth just resound in your, in your heart and let the shouts of joy, maybe you're a very quiet, introverted person, that's okay. But inside of you, you ought to be dancing and shouting because of what Christ has done through the gospel, through his blood, through his broken body. So you guys can come and receive the elements and then go back to your seats and we'll take them together. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now just take a few seconds and thank the Lord for his abundant provision for you.
Thank you, Lord, that in all of our sinning, God, you have covered us with grace. You have given us enough supply of grace, abundant provision, so that we never have to hunger after the things of this world anymore. We never have to thirst for those things which lost men and women seek after. But you have supplied everything for our hunger, everything for our thirst, everything for our healing, everything for our nourishment. Through Christ Jesus, our resurrected Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just read this benediction over you. Very familiar. This is not a Christmas verse. This is a gospel verse. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.